we are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer. You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out. Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this, is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Ko-fi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments, and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. Hey everybody, this is Frank Grange Jr. of History of the Eyes of Face. Eyes of Face. I'll tell you what, right now, I'll tell you, whenever I'm down here recording, I like to say Eyes of Face. It's history through the eyes of faith, friends, and old producer Wes has put me in the red so that we can bring in Angie Ferris, ladies and gentlemen, right here. Very much. So there's Angie. She is bringing us the content of history through the eyes of faith, and we're going to talk about all things history and faith. No, we're not. That's all I can do with that voice right now. Okay. Um, I was just started out. I didn't have anything ready. Um, we're just telling stories. I'm glad you're here. Um, and you found us and you're dialed in and this is another episode. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a quick story to tell. Okay. Something recently that I enjoyed a week ago. I was driving down the road and by the way, if you're a first time listener, let me just pause and say, we like to do every episode with a little bit of fun and games, a little bit of talking, a little bit of silliness at the beginning. Sometimes it takes six minutes. Sometimes it takes 14. So just buckle up. I try to give you a heads up if it's going to be more than 10 or 11. Yeah. I mean. Check the show. And notes. I said a few episodes ago, I, this, you know, the content of this podcast is it's an educational podcast. It's history. It's facts. It's as if you're maybe taking a course. It is a course in the initial beginning stages of this content. It was a course that Angie would teach. We're putting it in podcast form. I would like to attend and take a course that I know the first 10 minutes is going to be fun and games. Okay? So if you don't like that, then you'll fast forward it. Okay? Whatever. My fun and game is to tell a quick story. Um, and Angie, unless you have something you want to tell. No, you're good. Okay. Um, I recently was, I was driving, I'm thinking, you know, I had a really good time, I don't know, 15, 18 years ago, taking my two boys at the time to a Star Wars convention, like a legit, where you buy a pass yeah, and you know, there's events, there's speakers, they've got, you know, a lot of people dress up, a lot of people dress up, they've got movie premieres and, uh, we went to one, we went to one a long time ago. I can't remember the year, but it was in the early 2000s. Um, so I like, I want to go and do that again. I think we should all go again. Find one close when the next one is. So I Googled it. Turns out, here in Nashville, last weekend mm. was not a Star Wars convention, but a, con- a collectible convention mm. with a lot of Star, Star Wars memorabilia. But other pop culture collectible toys. Yeah. 
but they also had celebrities there that you can get pictures and autographs with. One of which, Ali, should have been a better story if I could remember the guy's name. His first name is Ian. Go ahead, Wes, and look up look up his real name, and then you can tell me because I'm not going to take the time to do that. First name's Ian. He's an actor. He's an elderly man at this point, probably in his 60s, maybe even early 70s. He played Emperor Palpatine. Mm. He played the Emperor. Shoot the lasers out of his hands. Oh, that guy's so scary looking. Yeah, there he is, Ian McDiarmid. Yeah. So I got to see him last weekend. Now, you go into a room where they have the different celebrities, and you can get in line to get their picture, but they each have a price tag of what it's going to cost to get a picture signed with them, to get a picture autographed by them. Okay. Not with them. Ian's rate, 130 bucks. Didn't do that. <laughs> but I did get to stand around and see everybody in the room. One of the other actors that was in there was Vincent D'Onofrio, who was well known from Full Metal Jacket, but he's been in a ton of stuff. I know him from Men in Black. He was oh. also in The Breakup. He's been in a lot. of. He's a character actor, good actor. But, um, yeah, so Baylor and I went. And I've got all these pictures, and they had a lot of people were dressed up. Ridiculous. Most of it was toys, though. Most of it was collectibles, and we walked around and saw a bunch of booths, and we bought a couple of things. But we did get some pictures with um, that they had set up there that you that was for it was free. They had like these sets and props and stuff, and mm -hmm. so we were on the speeder bikes from Return of the Jedi. Oh yeah, and then we were uh, at this setup they had from like the Mandalorian, where there was you like sand people. One of those pictures we could post it on our feed now yeah, that you've we can told do, the yeah, we'll do fans that. about it, but. When we went in the room where Ian was, the Emperor Palpatine, and Baylor does a great impression of him going, do it. <laughs> and we're in the room, and I see him, and I try to sneak a picture with my camera. And I did get him like in the room, and I sent it to some buddies. At the end of the day, I could see where they were exiting out of their conference room that they were in. It was yeah. out at the fairgrounds at Mount Julia. I mean, Lebanon. Oh, yeah. Wilson mm -hmm. County Fairgrounds. Yeah. And I was like, oh, let's go around outside. So when they come out to get in the little golf cart to go to their little rest place. <coughs> Bless you, Frank. Excuse me. Um, so we're standing out there, and Vincent D'Onofrio comes out, and he gets his golf cart, and we're, like, trying to act like no big deal. I'm like, get the – I said, Baylor, tell me when – and like, because I'm like, I'm telling you, he's coming out. And old Palpatine came out right where we were, and I took a little picture of him over my shoulder – and then we waited, and his handler, they are both walking on the steps. And I said, have y'all had a good show? And he was like, yeah. And they kind of were like, uh-oh, is this a crazy dude that's going to talk to us? Mm -hmm. Like, what's happening? I was just engaging. And then I turned to him, and I was like, big fan of all your stuff. Like, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. As he's looking at his phone and walking the other direction. Like, I'm not getting paid for this engagement. So yeah, I'm so moving, I'm done. Yeah. I'm moving away. Yeah. And then I could see one of the handler guys look to the other guy and motion him down like, not sure where this guy, where I am going with this. Right. So I just turned to Baylor, like, oh, let's go. So we walked to the car and left. I wasn't going to, you know, and I didn't get a picture or try to. But as he turned and walked away, Baylor went, do it, which I thought was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah. Which was probably what caused the guy to motion the other No, I don't think he heard that part. I don't know who heard it. They could have heard it. They were close enough to do it. But, um, we had a we had a good time and we 
Baylor got a um, <laughs> Baylor got a T-shirt, Luke Skywalker T-shirt that was kind of cool. That was cut, you know, it was kind of a custom design. <clears throat> and then he had a um, he likes the movie Fight Club. And one of the little booths had those little Fight Club bars of soap that's from the logo of the uh, movie, like fake. He got that, and and um, I got a uh, a beer glass, like you would drink the beer out of. You know what I mean? You know, a pint glass. Yeah. That uh, says Guinness on it, but it's Sir Alec Guinness, and it's and it says Guinness, like the Guinness logo of the beer. But underneath it, it says Obi Wan Kenobi, Sir Alec Guinness, and it's got his face on it. That's pretty cool. That is cool. So, <clears throat> anyway, that's my recent pop culture story. We talk about Star Wars on this. I got it's been to a go long to a time l- since Star Wars has showed up. I, I went to the event. We, it was it was kind of pricey to go in. Mm. It was a gamble, and so we pull up. I'm like, if there's a long line, I don't know if we're doing this. So we pull up the fairgrounds, and there's a long line. But it seems like it could be moving quickly to get into the conf- into the conference. <clears throat> so we start seeing the people getting out of their cars that are getting in the line and what they're wearing. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, we're doing this. Because <laughs> some weirdos. <laughs> like, oh, we're doing this. We got to see more of these people. You're so and right unusual. when I got in line, right behind me in line, was a dad in full Ghostbusters costume with the whole pack on his back. <laughs> wow. And his two little kids each had the costume and packs on their back. And I said, I don't know if it's safe for those kids to have that kind of power on their back. I mean, think they could cross the streams and we could be in bad shape today. Oh, wow. And the guy in front of me goes, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> 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 Come on, and Frank. I said, you're probably going to say, <laughs> I was quoting Logan, Wes, when he goes, yeah, you're going to probably see a lot of Mandos. <laughs> People dress as the Mandalorian, and it made me laugh. You're going to see a lot of Mandos. And I said that to Baylor in line, and the guy in front of me was like, yeah, I was going to be a Mandalorian to look at what I came up with. And he was wearing, <laughs> he had like a belt thing, but his primary base costume was like scrubs. Oh. And I said, well, at least you'll be ready for surgery if you need to. And he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. It was great. I enjoyed it. We made friends. Um, the other guy in front of me had a Mandalorian helmet on with long hair coming out from underneath it. No shirt. Were y'all dressed at all? You're all just no. in your normal clothes. In our normal clothes. No shirt on. And like, it's I saw some Han Solos with some blasters on their hips. <laughs> saw Princess Leia. Like I didn't see any stormtroopers. Of people there were in normal clothes. A majority. Okay. And and of those normal clothes, they would be what you would wear to a fair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Not to the airport. <laughs> You know what I mean? Although what people wear to the airport has come way down. Yeah, so but I'm still saying to the fair. you're getting an idea. Not necessarily dealing with the says, top oh, brass. We're doing oh, this. we're going in here. <laughs> we're going in this. But I met a guy. I was wearing my Smoking the Bandit t-shirt. 
And there was another line of people that were celebrities, but they weren't really charging. They were charging, but not the high-end stuff in the other room. Right. You wouldn't know them if you saw them, but they would have a banner behind them of what their affiliation yeah, was. Yeah, like I was a stormtrooper. Or this guy, like one of the guys designed the toys for Kenner. Oh. Okay. Another guy was in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi as like an Imperial officer. What else he was in? What? Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I asked, what were you in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, holds up a picture. I'm the guy on the left holding the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. I didn't get his picture though. Guy, another guy, he was like, looked like he was like 6'8, six, 6'9. Six, Big dude. He was in the Darth Vader costume in Rogue One. Mmm. The other guy that I was engaging with, I smoking the Manus shirt on back to that. He goes, oh, I like your shirt. I go, thanks. He goes, you know, Burt Reynolds was a good friend of mine. And I'm like, oh, really? I start talking about it. I'm like, he could be making this up. This guy was, an, was a cartoonist for Jim Henson. Oh. Anyway. Cool. It was an interesting little day. Had a good time. Made some memories. Not like what you're going to make today, folks. Not, Not like the right. memory you're making today, tuning in to History of the Eyes of Faith. Yes, if you just joined us, you skipped 12 minutes, which was fine. But now we're going to get into Vice President of Sales, Steve Langton. <laughs> and what otherwise he, known, otherwise as, known the, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, not to be confused with Cadbury, which makes great cream eggs. In what year? 1212. Uh, 12. Yeah, 15, 18, 25. Well, he yeah. died in 1222. Did he? Did yeah. you look that up? Yes, I did. go, Frank? So Steve Langton was doing some stuff. He was negotiating between the barons and sure King John. Because something I've got right here says he was still doing stuff in 1225. Maybe it was 1228. Okay, that would be good. Well, I let's find out. I would hate for this to be wrong. Let's find out. Okay, so in previous episode, we were diving into the Magna Carta and using this article called The Church and the Charter. Charter. The Charter. From uh, published in Christianity Today in 2015 by Thomas Andrew. And so we were getting, and so far we have discovered that Stephen Langton is the connecting between the church and the charter, right? 1228. Yeah. Okay, so Stephen Langton is a connecting force mm -hmm. and a lot of evidence. And so he was an intermediary between the barons and King John as they're negotiating. So we, what, was, what was it we had just talked about at the end of our previous episode? Um, oh, we were talking about the, um, the clause giving the church liberty and l making it illegal for the king to interfere in the affairs of the church being at both the beginning and the end of the Magna Carta and why there is scholarly belief that Langton was the one that was involved in that and how his backstory was one that he was looking for the opportunity to influence the rule of law, to, to put the rule of law in place over a monarch having complete control of the situation. Right? Yes. Okay. There's something bigger than just the king's word on right. it. Right. So we're going to go back to Langton. We're still I, in I that. I did just think of something else I saw. <laughs> the kings? 
No. Uh, anyway, okay, we're going to go back to Langton and um, his influence in there. So apparently he gets exiled again. He returns from exile in 2018, and he was influential in securing the 1225 reissue. So you asked me, when was it reissued? So from 1215 to 12, 10 years later. Did you say 1218? I like you said 2018. Oh, I meant to say 1218 when okay. he came back. Such was the strength of Langton's backing that he issued the 1225 version with a sentence of excommunication against any king, officer, or baron who broke the Charter's laws. It was this 1225 version that would go on to become a central part of English law and would eventually form the foundation upon which the language of rights and liberties in its modern sense could be built. Okay? So reissued in 1225 and then that... Version becomes the one that we built upon. Okay, say that again. Reissued in 1225. Yeah. And then that version becomes the one that's built upon. Okay. Pause. Don't forget where you are. Okay. Because I have to point out that in the studio is Emperor Palpatine. Right there. That you brought yeah. to this show. Yes. And we opened it together. Yes. Oh, there it is. I just want to say, I can't believe we had that whole thing. and I didn't say he's right there. Yeah. Scary person. All right, go ahead. Anyway, okay. Had the church not been committed to the principle of ecclesial liberty contained within the text, church freedom, there is no way of knowing whether such reissues would have been achieved because they wouldn't have had an interest in it. Because of Langton's innovation, the church would go on to throw its considerable weight behind the great charter. Without, the cru without that crucial contribution, there is a very real possibility that 2015 would mark the 800th anniversary of nothing more than a failed rebellion. The rebellion. However, the I get the point. Without the church's backing of the Magna Carta, then there wouldn't have been an 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. Because but we know the one that was issued in 1215, the Pope declared void because of the circumstances. He said it was issued under duress. Yeah. But Langton and others and the barons proceeded but be to push it. So under John's son, Henry III, it was reissued. What this author is saying is had the church not had an interest in having it reissued, it might not have ever been reissued and therefore wouldn't have become the foundational document yeah. that it is. I agree with that statement. However, a lot of other things could have happened. In the right. But the way that it happened, had the church not been involved, it might not have happened. Now, what was, I don't know if this is the right time to ask this question, but was Henry the Third a good dude? I don't know. I haven't done a deep dive on Henry the Third, but he kept he did that and he did that willingly, not under duress. So it was a better dude than his father. Yeah. Before we move on to look at these principles in detail, the principles of the charter, however, it's necessary to say a few words about one of the most important developments in medieval theology, which emerged over the course of the twelfth and early thirteenth centuries. Um and let me just say here, we're going to spend some time in the next episode or two talking about theology and its development and universities, and that's another big piece. Also, we're going to be, uh, in the future, diving more into the 13th century, which this event is helping, happening right at the beginning. So it's happening at the end of the 12th, the beginning of the 13th century. Um, 
anyway, so we'll be coming back to this. But I like what he says here to kind of lay the groundwork. We're going to go back to, okay, how did the theology get to this point, okay? Mm-hmm. And kind of the role of theology and all of that kind of stuff. But right now we're just going to summarize what he's got here. So this, one of the important developments were the formation and continued development of a theologically reflective and coherent canon law. Canon law would be the law of the church, the law that shapes everything else. Now, we know the church is intimately involved in all of life. So if the church has canon law, then it's going to affect all of life, right? Not just the church. A central moment in this development of this canon law was the completion of a document called the Decretum, D-E-C-R-E-T-U-M, of the medieval canonist Gratian. And this happened in the middle of the 12th century. The Decretum was an enormous work bringing together sources from various papal decrees, church councils, the Bible, the church fathers, and bits of Roman law. It was intended as a complete compendium of canon law and was quickly accepted as authoritative. The task that Gratian had set himself was to establish a framework in which these discordant canons, those things I listed, Papal decrees, let's say them again, church councils, the Bible, the church fathers, and the bits of Roman law, where all those things which were often contrasting and opposed could be reconciled in a single coherent system. Its influence was widespread, inspiring hundreds of commentaries, many of which constituted the theological roots of liberty and right, great works of theology in their own right. As Historian Brian Tierney puts it, the work of these decretists, the ones who studied the decretum and implemented it, most of them unpublished so far, contained the most sophisticated thought of the age on problems of church and state. The development of canon law and particularly of the decretum contributed greatly to the systemization and renewal of theological thought throughout the 12th and 13th centuries. This is part of what Langton is experiencing when he's studying Deuteronomy is now what is available. Someone has taken the immense amount of time to reconcile these things together and come up with an exhaustive work that establishes the law that is found in all of those places and put together in one thing. What was it called again? Decretum, D-E-C-R-E-T-U-M. Okay. Decretum. So that's just a little. And it happened when? <clears throat> in the middle of the 12th century. It was written by a man named Gratian, G-R-A-T-I-A-N, okay? So we, that's just thrown in here so that we can understand that this is a development that's happened before we come to Runnymede that, that Langton has experienced. So this idea of there now being a source, so it's not just like, well, this is in the Bible, but the Pope said this, but the early fathers said this. So the this. church had created a document already. Gratian had, and it had been accepted, yes. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the importance of due legal process. We've already seen that the principle of due process that underpins the Magna Carta was best demonstrated through repeated demands for, quote, the judgment of peers. I found this stuff, this part, so interesting because it's something that I had never thought about before. The Magna Carta assumes judgment by peers to be the only legitimate form of judgment, and that should not surprise us, nor should we think that such an assumption was a radical revolutionary one. 
Trial by ordeal, which we mentioned before, the main alternative to peer judgment, have been in long decline in the Western world, particularly in England, since the legal reforms of Henry II. Now, trial by ordeal is like where they have you many different things. But for instance, we talked about you watch over you walk over hot coals. If your feet get burned, that means you are guilty. If you can walk over them without getting burned, that means you're innocent, which seems with our modern mind and being children inheritance of these things that happened 800 years ago that seems crazy to us but we're going to learn why that was the way it was and why it changed which i find very interesting um the decline had been hastened the decline of trial by order had been hastened by theological concerns about the legitimacy of tempting god to perform a miraculous judgment and concerns that priests involved in blood punishments were corrupted by association so the priest could become corrupted because he was associated with something that caused somebody pain or death, all right? Only five months after the events at Runnymede, the Fourth Lateran Council forbade priests from blessing the ordeals. That was the Lateran Council that we talked about when we talked about Innocent III mm-hmm. and how he did. We talked about him doing away with trial by ordeal. Right. What he did was actually forbid priests from using it and blessing it so by giving that the given that the ordeal required a priestly blessing to ensure God's righteous judgment, the fact that he banned priests from doing that served as an effective ban of the ordeal itself. Okay? Or the Lateran Council banned it. While we should not be surprised that the Magna Carta regards the judgment of peers as the only legitimate form of judgment, neither should we imagine that its focus on peer judgment as a central aspect of a proper legal process is unimportant. The slow death of trial by ordeal throughout the 12th century and the focus on peer judgment that accompanied it yielded a growth of theological thought that had a profound impact on the intellectual foundations of the Magna Carta. The theological movement from divine judgment to human judgment, catch that? Mm-hmm. Trial by ordeal was seen as divine judgment. Yep. Judgment of peers is human judgment, of which the demise of trial by ordeal is a crucial part. That theological movement laid many of the foundations from which the barons could demand a proper and binding legal process. In his book, The Origins of Reasonable Doubt, James Whitman, law professor at Yale Law School, argues that the ultimate concern of the medieval judiciary was not necessarily how to identify factual proof, but how to absolve oneself of moral responsibility for the outcome of judgment. So if I'm overseeing the judgment and the result is infliction of pain, harm, suffering, death, then am I morally responsible for that? So spread that out. So the concern was not to actually identify the truth of innocence or guilt, but to absolve the person involved from being morally responsible. So we're putting it in God's hands. Trial by ordeal is in God's hands, okay? So you don't want to just take it over and put it in the king's hands because then the king could be held morally responsible, right? I'd never thought about that before. I, and maybe it's because I'm nobody's sure it's, on the hook. Yeah, I'm sure it's trial because by ordeal, just, nobody else is on the hook. Right. And, and trial by jury, there's not one person on the hook. Right. And that's what we're used to. But I'd never thought about that theological struggle. Well, they're dealing with that during the 12th century. They're theologically thinking that through. So this was an issue that had existed ever since Christianity had become adopted as the religion of the Roman Empire. And Christians have found themselves in positions of authority required to dispense justice. 
The great concern of the Christian legal system since the time of Augustine had been that in condemning people to death, judges effectively became responsible for murder in the eyes of God, particularly if they inadvertently condemned an innocent party. The trauma ordeal had developed as a way of leaving judgment and therefore responsibility for judgment in the hands of the divine, of shifting the odium of human responsibility to God. The decline of the ordeal in the 11th and 12th centuries thus threatened to implicate those who administered justice in the guilt of mortal sin. The solution to this problem required the development of a delicate theological framework that sought to absolve judges of moral responsibility in cases of blood punishment. This framework drew heavily on the theology of the Church Fathers, St. Jerome and St. Augustine, who had been faced with very similar problems in their own time. The medieval focus on a due and proper legal process develops, therefore, out of a theological concern for the guilt of those charged with the dispensation of justice. It was only by establishing the procedures of the law that those who sat in positions of judgment could be absolved of moral responsibility for their judicial decisions. Insofar as the judiciary followed a developed legal process, it was the law that shouldered the burden of responsibility for punishing the guilty party. This concept of due process pervades the Magna Carta, not simply in its appeals to the lawful judgment of peers, but in the fact that the basic purpose of the charter was to set out what constitutes right and proper action on the part of the governing authority. With this in mind, it is particularly relevant that this question of due process within a legal framework was a major theological concern of none other than Archbishop Stephen Langton. It becomes clear that Langton's regard for the due process of law is born out of theological as opposed to simply practical concerns. The demand for a process of law, just like the demand for judgment by peers, is born from a concern to protect those in authority from moral responsibility in their decision-making. So what Langton is concerned with as the archbishop is how to protect the king from committing a mortal sin by condemning someone to death. So we need a process of judgment and of law that uses... um, takes that mortal burden off of him. Insofar as kings follow the processes and precepts of the law, temporal rulers are able to put forth judgments without accusations of mortal sin. It is the law that shoulders the, bur- shoulders the burden of responsibility for the execution of unjust action rather than the king. Whether or not it entered the Magna Carta through Langton, the principle of due process is an essential feature of medieval developments in legal and political thought. Insofar as it places the authority of law above that of the king, the Magna Carta can thus be seen as a central development in the movement from a feudal hierarchical vision of sovereignty in which the king is the source of all temporal authority, authority which we've discussed is in itself given to him by God, moving from that to a contractual vision of sovereignty in which the king or ruling body is subject to the law and answerable to its precepts. Can you... I want you to get through your thing thing and then reword. Reword it, please, because you've added a lot. Okay, hang on just a minute. What has not always been recognized is that this principle of due process is one deeply influenced by the precepts of medieval theology. A theological concern for the moral guilt of those in positions of judgment 
and authority led to a heightened regard for legal process in the medieval mind. Insofar as those in authority followed the procedures of the law, then it was the law that killed and not the judge or the king. Okay, so the idea is, and, and this is something I hadn't thought about in this way before. The church, the kings, the lords, the barons, they're all members. They're all participating in the body of Christ. And their priests, bishops, the people concerned for their spiritual well-being want to be careful that they're not being set up in a situation in which by doing their job, they will commit mortal sin. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so if the king is going to decide who lives and who dies, so that's why they had trial by ordeal to begin with. That was a way of like throwing it to God's hands. Okay? But now that is going out of style, and the king's coming up with this, like Henry was sending his people out to judge. Well, theologically, as they're sitting in the universities thinking about this, they're like, how can we not have this be a mortal sin? How can And so the judgment by peers or and raising a rule of law, okay? Then the law itself carries the burden of guilt of who, who said you were guilty. It's not a person. It's the law. We're so familiar with that that it's it's a concept we have to think hard to wrap our brain around, okay? But, like, even a judge now, when a judge, when they have the sentencing, like, recent trial, somebody's condemned, they're convicted of murder, and it's time to sentence that person, and the death penalty is on the table, I think the jury actually decides in a lot of states whether the death penalty is not the judge. But let's say the judge has to inflict some kind of sentence. When the judge sits there, he will or she will quote all the laws they're using to make that decision and explain yeah. legally why they're making that decision. And so it's the law, not the person. And what's being what we're learning here, what I think is unique here is the church was the society. The church and life in the church was what was important. You were born into the church and you died out of the church and you had all these rituals and sacraments that went through your life. So the church is concerned in Christendom about the king not committing a mortal sin and has this idea. So the idea of a system of law that is greater than any one person is a Christian theological idea. Its roots are in Christian theology. That's the point that we're taking away. And the other thing that I had not thought about before till right now when I was sitting here telling y'all this is here we are in the Middle Ages and there's all these kings and lords and barons and they're the authority. So if you're someone like Stephen Langton or a student from the University of Paris or some other university or a theological student and you're like, wait, we need a system of law. We've got canon law, but how do we get the secular law out there for the law of the land? Well, this event at Runnymede gives a great opportunity, does yeah. it not? Yeah, so that's, he was teed up for that. Yeah, so whether or not Langton acted as a vehicle of, of this transmission of this information is really irrelevant. There was works of a couple of guys at the same time who were widely read and their ideas were widely disseminated by this time, by the early 13th century. There are plenty of other avenues by which these deeply theological ideas could have percolated through the Magna Carta, okay? So another point, and so that was about uh, due process, Another point in the Magna Carta, the third one, is the extensions of rights to all free men. 
It's also important to understand to whom the Magna Carta was directed when it referred to, quote, all free men. The majority of peasants under the English feudal system were serfs. Men and women who were bound either through promise or inheritance to a particular plot of land owned by a particular lord. Which we covered. All right. So we although can go back, not, you can go back and find another episode. Talk so about they couldn't the move away to somewhere else. So although they were not technically slaves, they neither were they free. Okay. So the Magna Carta then has very little to say about this lowest stratum of English society. Another reason why we should see the rights it conveys is somehow we should not see the rights it conveys as somehow inherent to human nature, like saying that, that it conveys human rights because it's not conveying it to everybody. It's conveying it to the free people, okay? Nevertheless, this extension of rights language to all minor landowners and tenants was highly unusual in the early 13th century. It was still giving it to a lot more people than anywhere else. Yeah, it was making un- a big, big statement. Yeah, unparalleled in contemporary charters and statutes across Europe. At a time when legislation was traditionally concerned with the protections of the rights of the elites, the Magna Carta assumed legal parity among all free men to an exceptional degree. Its specific clauses might have been predominantly shaped by the self-interested motives of the barons, but its scope extended well beyond the barons and those narrow confines. The final version of the Magna Carta then was not a charter for the privileged, privileged few but a charter for the whole community of England, even if that community inevitably and to differing extents excluded serfs, vagrants, women, and children. Given this radical extension of the language of rights, it is highly significant that the language and understanding of rights underwent significant developments in the latter half of the 12th century, particularly in the church. So just prior to this, so it's highly significant to understand that the understanding of rights underwent significant development in the second half of the 12th century. So in the 50 understanding years... Understanding of human rights. Yes. Yet again, the shift had been greatly influenced by the development of canon law and especially by Gratian's de- decretum. In his attempt to reconcile the church's discordant canons, Gratian had established certain principles as the key to discerning the proper interpretation of canon law. In Gratian's understanding, the so-called golden rule lies at the very heart of justice. This is written into the decree. The golden rule. And should this lie, this should thus lie at the very heart of earthly laws. This might sound unsurprising to the modern ear, but in the 12th century, it would have been something of revelation. Wow. Okay. As the political philosopher Larry Seedentop suggests, by identifying natural law with biblical revelation and Christian morality, Gratian gave it an egalitarian basis and a subversive potential, natural law. So natural law, the law of the earth, the way things work, is identified with biblical revelation and Christian morality. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He gives it an egalitarian basis and a a subversive potential, utterly foreign to the ancient world's understanding of natural law as everything in its place. That's a deep thing. I'm not going to try to go off on that. The point is, it's a new deal Mm -hmm. that leads to the mind we have today. Well, let me ask you this. And we'll see how it goes. So, Gratian? Gratian. Gratian. Spell it. G-R-A-T-I-A-N. Gratian. He was who? 
He's the one who wrote the decretum. Right. That took all those things he? and put them together. How was he an officer? Was he a priest? He was I think a, he was a monk, but I don't know. A monk? We can go back. A student. Uh, I like to get in, underneath that. Okay. Because it... You're saying Gratian led to the decretum, decretum play. No, he, he brought, he sat down and brought all of these documents together and tried to put out one piece of law, huge in nature. And then it was greatly adopted and expanded on. Okay. And he's the one who said that because the golden rule lies at the heart of justice, it should lie at the very heart of earthly laws as well. But the sake of this podcast too, it layers into pre Magna Carta yes. and Steve Langton and the bishops, yeah. the bishops, the barons. barons. So, it, so yes, so I'm, I'm, trying, I'm, tra I'm taking it back. Yeah. I'm going back from, from Magna Carta, Steve Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, the decretum, Roshian. Which see, probably he was, the decretum was done during the time that he was in school or just yeah, before yeah, he was that, in school. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm going back though. Right. Groshian. Okay. How did he get involved and who was influencing okay, him? Okay, when we get into our next um, segment, we'll be talking about, in the next episode, we'll be talking about the rise of universities. And I think we'll see that answer to your question. Okay. Um, Which, by the way, in a documentary that I recently watched, I heard a statement i didn't go back and research it or replay it to see if i heard it right but it said most if not all universities in the united states were based on a christian or a religious faith yeah we'll be talking about that in the next episode that's not a far-fetched statement not at all okay Okay. Insofar as it entered into the common law of England, it ensured the fact this extension of the rights language to those of the lower strata of society was radical and significant. And as far as it entered into the common law of England, it ensured in principle at least legal protections and legal rights to all free men of England, regardless of social status. And insofar as that extension of rights was rooted in egalitarian principles, it was rooted in a shifting theological landscape that was coming to recognize the fundamental equality of the human persons. Now, when we talked about Rodney Stark and we talked about slavery, that's what we were talking about because we were talking about the reasoning of the value of an individual in Christianity that then caused Christian society to realize that slavery was wrong, that all people. And so this is the same idea. And the Magna Carta is part of that process. I'm, yeah, I'm, listening. I'm stretching my neck. We have discussed the ideas concerning the central role of due process, the legitimation of arbitration in the affairs of the king, and the extension of rights language to all free men. These libertarian notions might not have formed the primary focus of baronial demands, what the barons demanded, but they are present nevertheless, giving the specific demands a basic structure and direction. The fact that these principles have become the central focus of a Magna Carta mythology does not negate their existence in the original document. So here's the conclusion of the article. We're almost done with the article? Yeah. A successive, as successive generations have read their own concerns and desires into its text, so the Magna Carta has developed as a document of legend and myth, hoisted with the concept of liberty to which its authors would never have acceded. 
So if you say the Magna Carta is the basis for all human rights, the people in that time would go, wait, those people don't deserve rights. Okay. Mm -mm. Now, let's be clear. It wasn't all humans. Yeah. What this essay has attempted to show, and this is the article, the essay, is that these principles outlined above present in the Magna Carta at its very inception and fleshed out and emphasized in the centuries since are principles that were themselves rooted in the development of Christian theology. So we, we showed that, how each of those principles came from Christian theology. Moreover, their appearance in the Magna Carta and indeed their preservation in the Magna Carta down through the centuries is indebted to the influence of the Christian church and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. If the Magna Carta is, as Lord Denning once suggested, quote, the foundation of the freedom of the individual against the arbitrary authority of the despot, end quote, it occupies this place in history only because the church gave it the required intellectual and practical tools from the ideas that shaped it to the practical support of an established body with considerable political authority. In Angie's words, the church provided the theological ideas and the rational thinking that brought about those points and then the manpower and the backing to see it through that it continued to be reissued and reissued and become law. Without the support of the church and without the theological developments which provided the Magna Carta's authors with their intellectual framework, it is doubtful whether 2015 would be remembered as the 800th anniversary of anything of particular note. When we come to celebrate the history of the Magna Carta then, we should not forget the contribution of the Christian church. Remember, this article was written on the 800th anniversary. Right. We should not bow down to the notion that the Magna Carta is a product of nothing more than selfish intent. Certainly, practical self-interest was a vital contributing factor to its development, but modern historical study is all too ready to ignore the contribution of ideas to the shaping of history, especially ideas that come with the Christian bent. Given how vital theological and philosophical developments have been in shaping the way we as a nation have historically thought and responded, this is a mistake to do away with those. And I thought when I was when I was preparing for today and read that about vital theological and philosophical developments, it's I hope when we get to the end of this, and I hope y'all are with us to the end, whenever that may be of this, when we get to modern times, we'll be able to specifically see how those vital theological and philosophical developments have shaped the way we think right now. So we can't do, those are the underpinning things and we can't ignore them in the Magna Carta. While it is true that ideas should not be treated in isolation from the practical demands which gave them their substance, that's true, neither should these practical demands be isolated from the ideas which shaped them. As the Magna Carta illustrates so perfectly, the particular developments of history require the more general ideas that frame their content. And that's what we talk about all the time. What were we thinking that brought us to this? What idea caused that? Even if you have a cataclysmic event, the way that's reacted to it is based on the way you see the world. Your mm -hmm. policies coming out of it are based on the way you see the world. Magna Carta then deserves to be remembered as a document shaped by the history of religious thought just as much as it is remembered as an expression of secular demands. And insofar as it represents a contribution to the evolution in political thought about the liberty of the individual and the limitations of the state, it is a decidedly Christian contribution. A contribution wrought in Christian theology, ecclesial law, and the sometimes murky world of church politics. 
I just get chills. I did too. Yeah, chills. It's pretty. It's a good amazing. article. Christianity Today. I don't. I've not done a lot of research on them. I just, you know, earlier this. No, was, I guess it was last. Sometime recently in the past twelve months, we both listened to a podcast that they produced. Yes. And it's I good. was impressed with. I don't know all the things that they do. Obviously, they have a magazine that you just read an article out of. Yeah, but, that was the main thing. I think they're branching out now. They've got, pot, you know, like everybody is. But they were primarily known as a magazine. Like back when I was in graduate school, I would get copies of the magazine. Um, and once again, this article is by Thomas Andrew. Would you say that, and I don't know where we're going next. I don't want to hijack where we are. No, we're good. I'm, I think we're probably going to have to. Is this kind of a wrap up? Yeah, and I'm sitting here looking to see if we should get into the next topic a little bit. Yeah, we might a little bit since we have a little bit of time. Well, what, what I was going to ask you, and it's really not a topic for the podcast, but we can take a minute. Would you say Christianity Today is a progressive Christian magazine or a conservative Christian magazine? You know, over the years, I've found it to be uh, represent all aspects. Not in the sense that it'll have a really a very conservative article here and a very progressive article there, but they really try to take the middle road. I've heard from some people lately that they think that it's become more toward the progressive, but that just be to be because that those people are particularly conservative. You know what I'm saying? But I have found it to be middle of the road. The current editor of Christianity Today lives here in Nashville. Really? And I've heard him speak a couple of times in the last... Actually, I heard him on a podcast last week and saw him speak in person at Vanderbilt in March. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to forget that. his name. I'm so sorry. Hmm. His name... I mean, somebody could look it up real quick, but... Well, I would say we've probably got 10 minutes. Okay. Which is not enough time to really... I, I don't really want to I think we can get started it. because this is episode 98... And then, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And next episode is 99. And then we're going to do something uh, special for 100, which will be content related, but not new content. So I would like to make sure we finish this next section before 99 is over. So it's probably a good idea to go ahead and start in right here. And actually, as I was preparing for this recording, we're recording three episodes together. God, sorry, spilled the beans. But as I was preparing for this, and this is the middle episode, I was thinking, should I swap these? Like we were ready to go on the Magna Carta, but what we're fixing to talk about. With we're fixing to. Fixing to with scholasticism and the rise of universities and theology would really be good background for what we just talked about in the Magna Carta. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So there's so much during this period of what we're now moving into is called the high middle ages. And I'll bring some details on that when we come back after 100 that happens simultaneously, as we've already discovered, you know, like... The High Middle Ages? So much during that High Middle Ages that is okay. happening simultaneously. That's why we're kind of... Sometimes we're in 1215, and someone's back to 1150, and sometimes we're at 1285, and sometimes... You, you see what I mean? There's a lot... We're, we're telling storylines that extend throughout that period, so it's hard to are stay you, exactly chronological. Are, did you already tee up what we're talking about next just now, and I missed it? We're talking about scholasticism, theology, and the rise of university. But but you didn't just say that. I did just say that. Oh, well. Okay, sorry. Apologies. Yeah, sometimes Frank has to be working on things. While well, he's working. I'm working on the 100th episode. I was trying to look up something about the 100th episode. Okay. So. so, here we go on this. Are you with me? No, not yet. 
Okay, we're going to go back to... Scholasticism. No, we're going to go back. This initial part, remember how we talked about cathedrals and, and chapels for just a little bit, a few episodes back? This is some more information on that that yeah. I knew existed somewhere. What was it somewhere. we called that? You, I named it and you changed it. It was good. It was better. Something about impressive buildings or impressive... Something. I don't remember. Y'all remember because y'all no, have seen it and out. listened to it anyway. Okay, so... This is referring back to that architecture. For eight centuries, Gothic cathedrals throughout Europe have inspired worshipers and awed tourists. Okay, I had to think about that. Eight centuries, 1,200, 2,000, eight centuries. So they were built 1,200. You know, Gothic cathedrals have have inspired worshipers and awed tourists. The medieval masters. Awed. A-W-E-D. They have awed tourists. The medieval masters of Gothic style tried to portray in stone and glass man's central religious quest. They wanted to depict attention. On the one hand was man aspiring to reach the heights of heaven. On the other hand was God condescending to address the least of men. The movement of the Gothic, therefore, is two-way. Arches and steeples, aligned like rows of rockets, ready to ascend to heaven, point skyward. But through colorful windows of leaded glass, the light of God descends to meet the lowly. It's an architect's version of the pillars of human reason and divine revelation. Isn't that cool? Reaching up to God and the light coming down to us, an architect's version of the pillars of human reason and divine revelation. The Gothic cathedral, therefore, displayed the spiritual tension of the Christian drama the highest aspirations of man and the descending light of God. Man, in effect, ascends while God descends. Such language is, of course, figurative. God is no more above than below in any spatial sense, but man has always described his need in terms of reach and God's truth in terms of descent. Man has always described his need in terms of reach and God's truth in terms of descent. Appropriately, therefore, okay, let me just stop just a minute here. So we're fixing, we're fixing, we're getting ready to see why we're talking about cathedrals. And also this content, that particular stuff I was just reading comes from the Church in Plain History, a book by Bruce Shelley that we've referred to several times. Mm -hmm. The content for what's moving forward comes from there and another book called Medieval Mysteries by Thomas Cahill, which I'm really enjoying. It's a new book I've I've uh, recently come across. It's The book is not new. Early 2000s, I think, is when it was written. But I've recently come across it and like his style a lot. And then we'll also get back into how the West was won some Rodney Stark in this topic. But a lot of that stuff has been interspersed. So what I've read to this point was from the Church in Plain History. Mm -hmm. uh, Church History in Plain Language. That's it. That's the name of it. But I just want to give credit to all those people because it's coming from a lot of different places. And we're talking about cathedrals because we're segueing into education as classes. Yes. So we've described that how it's this, that it was intentionally built to display that tension between human reason and divine revelation. The spires reaching up, the light coming down. Okay. Appropriately, therefore, schools in these cathedrals gave birth to medieval universities. For the supreme task of the university was to understand and explain the light of God's revealed truth. The supreme task of the university was to understand and explain 
the light of God's revealed truth. Like all rich and abiding manifestations of human cultural life, universities took time to develop. We can trace their beginnings to the palace and cathedral schools of the Carolingian era. When was the Carolingian era, Frank? Uh, the Carolingian era was, because um, Carolingian is a word. Um, um, of Charles. Uh, Charles the Great. Who was? The first Roman We emperor. called him Charlemagne. Charlemagne, yes, Charlemagne. And he was. Also a- related to Bill Hader. Around 800. Okay. Yeah. So that's when we can trace the beginnings. And if you remember back when we talked about Charlemagne, we talked about the Carolingian Renaissance and his mm-hmm. emphasis on education. So that's the beginning. That was an ex- I didn't do well on that exam. That was the beginnings of the palace and cathedral schools, staffed initially by Irish and English monks. And we talked about that. Remember talking about Alcuin, his right hand man, all mm-hmm. that, who were the first to implement the trivium quadrivium structure Mm. now trivium quadrivium is latin for the seven liberal arts and this was what the curriculum of universities was based on from that time forward the seven liberal arts are gram graham angie grammar rhetoric (laughs) logic music geometry arithmetic and astronomy the trivium gorivium? Trivium quadrivium. The trivium quadrivium. Now, what do you hear Qua- in that? You hear quad. Quad. So you hear tri and quad. Three and seven. four is seven. Trivium. Quadrivium. Quadrivium. Grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Music, geometry, arithmetic, and astronomy. When you say you go to a liberal arts school, it's covering those seven topics. In the roots. Today it wouldn't in be In the roots. But those were the roots of everything else, okay? The, the trivium quadrivium. They're, so now we're going to talk a little bit about the university. Their pupils, both noble and poor, for there were scholarships back then, were educated to take their places, some as lords who could actually read their own correspondence, others as court scribes or students, even bishop scribes, the two professions that then required literacy, And from the ranks of these scribes, the higher clergy, bishops, archbishops, and cardinals would be chosen, but not parish priests. The parish priests were required to learn by heart, but not necessarily to read the words inscribed in the ornamented books of Latin prayers and rituals. Well, I think it starts eight or nine in the seventh, in the ninth century, but moves forward. I think this is even now. This is in the early schools. Okay. Um. The collapse of the Roman, so this is prior to the collapse. Well, no, it's not because Charlemagne's after the collapse. The collapse of the Roman Empire in the West had devastated European learning, and in the process, literacy itself had become endangered, and we talked about that, right? The The enormous loss of books in the early Middle Ages, and then the author puts in quotes here, through catastrophes large and small connected to the fall of Rome and the barbarian invasions, meant that centuries had to pass for basic texts to be rediscovered, recopied, and distributed widely, and for libraries to be built up again. Okay, so catch that. Centuries are passing, and this author, I'm th- pretty sure this is coming from Thomas Cahill, is saying that they had to pass in time for the papyrus to come back. That was my bad. I'm sorry. 
Somebody's playing with their phone, y'all. No, I was trying to add some content before we wrap up. And but it, anyway, oh. the basic uh, time had to pass for the papyrus to come back, for the basic text to be reestablished and to grow and to be recopied and distributed widely and for libraries to be built up again. But once that happened and libraries were established, creative intellectual life began to percolate once more. Isolated monastic schools, however, could never quite morph into lively centers of learning where they could not attract the variety of teachers who, in the end, make for intellectual excitement, if only because they are so often in disagreement with one another. That's why it makes for intellectual excitement. For this to happen, cathedral schools in towns and cities had to grow to the point where they could support a larger range of lecturers. So it was the remote ones couldn't grow, but the ones in the cities could grow. Just as the Crusades reflected a widespread passion to extend the authority of God in Muslim lands, so the universities reveal an intense hunger to understand the truth of God received from any land. But just how did the world of ideas bow to the rule of God? How was reason made the servant of faith? We call this period in the history of Christian thought scholasticism because a distinctive method of scholarship arose and because a unique theology of the Middle Ages emerged. The aim of the schoolmen, as these teachers are sometimes called, was twofold, to reconcile Christian doctrine and human reason and to arrange the teachings of the church in an orderly system. That's the part that Gratian was working on, or Gratian, Mm -hmm. and wrote, A free search for the truth was never in view since the chief doctrines of the Christian faith were regarded as fixed. So we're not searching for truth. We're trying to balance and bring together, reconcile Christian doctrine and human reason and arrange the teachings of the church in an orderly system. The purpose of discussion was to show the reasonableness of the doctrines and to explain their implications. So it's back to start talking about the fact that you value reason and you reason through things is, and the value of the individual comes out of that, right? And the whole idea is a Christian base. So we'll stop with that part. Tell right me there. The, the, the centuries again that you're. So right now, you we, said made it's up coming to the, back. we made it into the Middle Ages. So from the time of the, Roman, the fall of the Roman Empire and the loss of Papyrus, things are lost. And as we talked about in those, the Dark Ages end around the 10th century. If you're going to divide the Middle Ages into dark, high, and late, or early, high, and late, the early ends around the 10th, 11th centuries. So that, so by the time you get to the 12th century, the libraries have been rebuilt. These schools have emerged because of the lively teachers. And we're going to get into more details of those as we go into the next episode. But... And now we're ready to have these discussions that are bringing human reason together with God's revealed law or God's revealed truth. So back to that cathedral, the pillars of human reason and God's divine law revealed to us. How do they work together? And that's what the universities are about. Ta-da! Ta-da, we got it. But we're going to pick up. So can you see from that statement alone how your statement that you heard on your podcast could be yeah, true. Yeah. Right. Because the universities came out of Christianity. Right. I'm just thinking about the U.S. universe. Well, you think about this. The U.S. universities, the original ones, were founded only a few hundred years after this. Right. The statement that I heard was all U.S. universities. 
And I think a lot of the evidence for that would come because of Christianity's commitment to education. So there'd be churches who would be founded universities. Okay. It's interesting, though, because they're state universities. Maybe he said all private universities. You think it could have been all private? Maybe. I'll have to go back. Okay. It's not a big deal. All right. Well, wow, we made it to the end of this one. Woohoo! And we're going to get to the next one someday. I hope you guys are enjoying it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I look forward to talking to the next one. We have any anecdotes? Anything we're going to do next? Anything uh, we want to talk about? Just well, other than thanks for listening to uh, the connections of Magna Carta, Steve Langton, to the Decretum, Decretum, Gratian, and now segueing into scholasticism. And we're the rise of universities. We're gonna. We're gonna. We're going to look more into that. Okay. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe, or follow wherever you stream your podcasts. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Ko-fi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.